Okay. Uh, Nonetheless, maybe two days ago I gave a wrong impression with all my ironic remarks, so let me nonetheless make it clear. If I were to be a British citizen, with all my distances, I would nonetheless unambiguously vote for Corbyn. And the doubts I have do not concern Corbyn himself, but first, globally, you know, I'm not a paranoiac. I'm not saying there is a secret capitalist uh, central committee which pulls the strings, but nonetheless, system acts in a certain way. And I'm afraid that if, let's be utopians, Corbyn were to win the system, which means automatic market movements, politics, would rather risk a serious crisis in United Kingdom than to allow him, his government, to to succeed. You know, that's the price of global capitalism, that it's not this, it doesn't work like this in one country, we take power and so on. That's why incidentally it got me into so much trouble, I was also against Brexit. Sorry, not Brexit, Grexit. Grexit, you know. Of course I am opposed to the capitulation, but I think there was, maybe, I'm not sure, a third way. Neither capitulation nor Grexit, because Again, as I already told you, but it's important to repeat, I met some people who were there in Brussels, some minor Slovene diplomats during negotiation, and they told me, Schäuble and Wolfgang, German finance minister and a hardliner, they wanted Grexit, because they already have a model plan. Greeks do Grexit, and then all they have to do is to take care that soon there will be a big humanitarian a tragedy, catastrophe in Greece to teach them a lesson. Not so much Greeks as all others. And I don't know to what extent his plan would have worked, but Varoufakis had a plan which, if it was feasible, I don't know, was the right one, to remain within and through some of those tricks, uh, kind of a supplementary uh, 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 euro for Greece, whatever tricks, while staying in, introducing chaos, and chaos, okay, the good chaos, new rules. I think he was the only hope, which is why I hope you notice this, that he had to step down already before, and he was the only one threatened with a trial for national treason and so on. Varoufakis. So, okay, he may have some illusions and so on, but no. And the same goes with all my criticism for uh, Assange. He is making now some moves which I find a little bit problematic. Like, did you notice that he said a week ago or when that, that in France Marine Le Pen lost because of uh, male chauvinism, you know, that like she was... Uh, uh, she was rejected because she is a woman and so on and so on. It's a little bit too cynical for me. Uh, but, uh, you know, don't forget that he is now simply fighting for his life, literally. When, you remember two weeks ago or when, the boss of CIA says, our priority, not one of the tasks now, of American intelligence establishment is to get Assange arrested, well, these are no jokes. And I learned precisely for, for Varoufak, from Varoufakis, when I spoke in via phone the last time, that he was very discreetly in Ecuador. 
a week or two ago, trying to mediate a modus vivendi for Assange, because even in this, with the victory of the left, they are still under tremendous pressure from United States. They want to keep their word, but how to do it, one doesn't know, and so on and so on. So, okay, this will be again quoted against me as my crazy obsession with violence and so on. And my God, I'm ready to say no, yes, no, I don't just abhor violence. There are cases where, for example, let me give you a concrete example, it's a modest one. Okay, they can arrest me. I will not say that I am for it, so I will put it in an ambiguous way. If Assange is extradited, arrested, extradited to the United States, then, now, listen carefully how I will put it. I wouldn't protest too much. I'm not saying I'm for it, just I wouldn't <laughs> protest too much if some organization were to start kidnapping American diplomats and call them as a, in, uh, as extortion, you know. <laughs> Give us Assange, we set them free, and so on. I think that arresting Assange is a clear case of a state crime, and it should be if, if it were to happen, and so on. So, uh, yeah, did I tell you already this? I think years ago I will repeat it. I'm preparing for, uh, for, uh, for meeting myself in my true will. <laughs> uh, I will try to give you an extreme example. I wonder how would you react to it. Maybe I mentioned it here, but 10 years ago more. Uh, can I imagine a situation when I would kill someone who didn't torture or kill any other person? Yes, I can imagine. Uh, when I was in Latin America, I think it was Argentina, somebody told me of a doctor he met and this is for me the ultimate obscenity. You know, the military dictatorship there, when they tortured prisoners, they had doctors who, let's say, a neutral example, I want to torture you, no, but I don't do it directly. First, a doctor examines you and gives me precise indications. This guy tortured him in this way, what do you want? You want him uh, healthy at the end? You don't mind if some eyes get lost or whatever, or you don't care if he dies. You tell him, no, we, it can be some uh, bones broken, but he must remain alive, and then he examines you and gives you precise, precise indications. And he can claim, wait a minute, I didn't do anything. I, no, if, let me put it like this, if I were to find with this guy behind the same table drinking tea, and somehow, don't ask me how, I would have some nice small cup of poison. <laughs> I find this almost more disgusting that what, than what direct torturers would have done. You know this hypocrisy. Oh, I just gave my opinion. I wouldn't. If I'm also a conformist, if it were be safe enough that I could see no way to blame me, I would have done it. I would have poisoned him. I would have done it. It's so absolutely disgusting. Precisely what makes it disgusting is not what he is doing, but the way he thinks he kept his hands clear. You know, no, I was just giving my opinion, what's wrong about it. And I always find this, for example, this is why I'm absolutely against uh, 
you know, the big German atom bomb scientist, Werner uh, Heisenberg. No, I read two books on him, and they are horrible. You know why? This is the worst of conformism. Now it's absolutely proven. Even that play, uh, uh, Copenhagen, is too soft on him. He tried desperately to build the bomb. He just screwed it up scientifically. He made the miscalculation. And we even know today which miscalculation. He judged that much more of that heavy water from Norway will be needed. And so he thought, we cannot do it. But they could have done it with much less water. And after the war, I find this so disgusting. In no way, there are no indications that this is true. He tried to sell his scientific failure in calculating as a secret act of resistance, you know. I was really trying to sabotage it, uh, uh, and so on and so on. But let's not lose time with this. Today, I hope you will not be too bored, because I really want to move a little bit more into theory. First, about, uh, uh, as I promised you, about uh, this uh, dystopian virtual worlds, our obsessions with games and movies, which take place after some apocalyptic catastrophe. How does it work? From here, I will enter the topic of uh, circular temporality, immortality, and hopefully I will have time to approach that movie, which is a modest one, but I find quite interesting. Uh, 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 I mentioned it to you two days ago, uh, Arrival. Okay, so let me begin. I refer here to a how do you pronounce it? Bowen or Bowen? B-O-W-N. Bowen. It's O. Okay. I don't want to appear too much in here. Uh, Alfred Bowen will soon publish. He asked me for a blurb. That's how I got hold of his short manuscript. It will be a book by Polity Press, I think, about um, uh, um, the underlying ideology of video games. And he, uh, Bowen, proposed a, a nice formula of the attraction of post-apocalyptic video games. All that, you know, we are just after the end of the world catastrophe, as thinly disguised utopias. Here is a quote from his manuscript. Dystopian disasters are really just a fresh chance, an opportunity to simplify our existence and leave everything behind. The problem faced with is not so much a lack of utopia that we are facing today, because <coughs> this is really what dystopic dreams are. The enjoyment of a chance to restart in a more simplified world, thinly veiled by the apparent horror of dystopic collapse. In other words, it is utopia repackaged. The chance to envisage changes to capitalist modernity is eradicated, leaving only dreams of tempering its destructiveness and of starting afresh after uh, the apocalyptic fallout. End of quote. Uh, an early apocalyptic megaflop, one of those proverbial movies which lost incredible amounts of money, from 1997. Kevin Costner's Postman does this. It's an incredible movie, this reactionary utopia at its purest. 
set in 2013, but 15 years ago, uh, uh, it, it takes place a decade or two after an unspecified apocalyptic event which left a huge impact on human civilization and erased most technologies. So, that, you know, people just live in small dispersed communities, usually in very brutal poverty and uh, relations of new domination. Uh, it, so it follows the story of an unnamed nomadic drifter, played by Kevin Costner, who stumbles across the uniform of an old United States Postal Service mail carrier. So what he does, it's very interesting, he starts to act as if he really is a postman. Between dispersed uh, communities, he begins to distribute scattered villages, he begins to distribute posts, pretending to act on behalf of the restored United States of America. Then, others begin to imitate him, and gradually the basic institutional network of the United States emerges again. The utopia that arises after the zero point of apocalyptic destruction is, and that's uh, crucial, we get as a happy ending precisely the United States that we, that we have now. Now, it is easy to see how, although they may appear to be an exemplary case of the Hollywood left, critically depicting the self-destructive potential of the capitalist civilization, such post-apocalyptic fantasies actually imply that there is no way out. Not only does the post-apocalyptic restoration end up in a utopia of the same society that preceded the apocalypse, just with some minor superficial embellishments, the very story of a new beginning after the apocalypse, as it were, clears the slate uh, and repeats a basic bourgeois myth. I think the secret promise of this uh, post-apocalyptic stories is through an, an apocalypse may appear a catastrophe, but what we will get is not a new society, but the same old society just uh, in which all the bad phenomena will somehow be erased. We get the ideal capitalism instead of corrupted capitalism. Uh, Bohm, this guy, ingeniously here turns around Freud's standard thesis about dream as a disguised fulfillment of a repressed infantile wish. Another last quote from Bohm. While Freud might argue that dreams are the disguised fulfillment of a repressed infantile wish, in the context of this discussion of video games, the diagnosis can be reformulated in the following way. Dreams are disguised as the fulfillment of a repressed infantile wish. While the dream is the dream of the other, he means of the social other, it is disguised as the fulfillment of the subject's internal instinctive desire. So it's a very nice idea. You know, it's very simple reversal. You got it. It's not that, that uh, our apparently complex, symbolically structured dreams are just a cover-up for some primitive infantile desire. It's the other way around. 
what appears as a, an infantile desire is a false mask. One should recall here Marx's classic critique of Thomas Hobbes. Capitalist civilization is not just an attempt to regulate and contain the wilderness of the state of nature through social contract. This state of nature itself is already capitalism at its zero level. And I claim the same holds for the zero level state in apocalyptic games and movies. It stands for capitalism for the specific capitalist constellation disguised as a wild state of nature. However, ah, now comes the theoretical point. Where does the claim, repeated by Bone, uh, the claim that every formation of our desires is a historically specific product of social struggles, and in this sense political, where does all this bring us? Bone gives to this claim a Lacanian spin, pointing out how the Lacanian theory of desire provides the best conceptual apparatus to understand how the digital universe, our big other, especially that of video games, determines our desires. Uh, like, you think there that you are almost, you know, when you, and for some time then I got bored, I was doing this together with my young son. You know, for example, we spent hours playing that stupid game Taxi, Taxi Driver. But we totally twisted the rules. My, our point was not to drive customers from one place to another, but to kill customers and to kill as many... And you would have said, no, it was just that we were... Uh, we regressed to our instinctual nature... No, precisely, we read the game correctly. <laughs> Apparently, and my son, again, has, has a tremendous uh, talent, at least for this. I remember, how is it called, that game where you build your house, your family? Uh, sorry? Yes, yes, yes. And my son, you know, I suggested him to play that game for pedagogic reasons, so that you will be able to build house, do a blah, 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 Liverpool, and to have a family. You know, and he went to play the game with an obvious goal and real. He used literally less than a quarter of an hour to introduce murder, torture, and so on. <laughs> you know how you do it in advice. You get quickly married, it's part of the game, and then you have a child. And then you don't feed the child. <laughs> the child gets all red, then social services somehow are informed, they come, you start shooting them, and there you are, you know, <laughs> in the middle of the family game. But what I'm saying is that this is precisely not a distortion of it. That's, that's what is uh, beneath it. So again, how the, then does this universe work? I didn't want to show it to you already this many times. So I will just uh, mention again the well-known scene for what is for me one of the biggest, maybe the biggest British movie of all time, Terry Gilliam's Brazil. In the scene 20 minutes into the movie, it takes place in a high-class restaurant. I often debated already in my book this scene. Oh, the customers, it doesn't matter what else. The customers, okay, guests behind the table, they get as many uh, 
dazzling photos nicely of a... And then when they order of dishes, and that, I think it's unique. It's one of the best examples of what Lacan calls separation as opposed to alienation. When they get the meal, they get a plate, and on it is just some, some grey indistinct half fluid, half uh, half sheet, whatever, like dots. And but above it there is a dazzling photo in colors. Nice steak or whatever, all that. <laughs> so you get the real, the disgusting uh, lamp, and you get what you are really eating, the symbolic image. But the two are nicely separated. It's wonderful how real, the real and fantasy are separated. But there is another, which I neglected in my previous analysis, wonderful detail of this scene. Uh, when the waiter presents to the customers around the table the menu, and the hero, played by Jonathan Price, refuses to choose, he just shouts at the waiter back, bring me whatever, I don't care. The waiter gets more and more angry, aggressive, and insists that the hero should make a choice. Like, you must choose, choose, choose. And then, at the end, the waiter, and then I think John Price says, okay, okay, this one, yes, you've chosen, and violently, uh, he closes the mini. The irony of this detail cannot but strike the eye. The waiter insists on the choice precisely because what each of the customers will get is what looks like the same experimental lamp, just with a different colorful photo above it. A free choice is needed to sustain the appearance that precisely appearance, what we see on the photo, matters. That there is a substantial difference between the choice of excremental lamps. But isn't this our situation? I claim, like, uh, now it's not only two, you have three now. Classic Coke, Diet Coke, Zero Coke. I feel exactly like this. They are almost the same, although, did I already tell you this? I know from my evil son, whom I mentioned, uh, he did part of his high school, now he's old enough, uh, research, they call it research, it was just a little bit of plagiarizing from the web, about uh, what's the difference between... Uh, Diet Coke and Zero Coke. I think I already mentioned this here. It's very interesting. It's a sexual difference. The research of Coke company showed them that uh, light Coke, light diet, is, uh, is uh, perceived as too soft to feminine. Men avoided it. And uh, the result? The result. So zero. Sorry. Yeah. Okay. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But now I, you see, secretly I'm transgender. I'm open to the feminine side in me or whatever. Yes. Yeah. No, but uh, so literally it was planned. Zero coke. It's supposed to be black, dark, harsh. Is light for men. And now comes this really as in the scene from. Uh, Brazil point, then some researchers, not part of Coca-Cola, of course, first they discovered that there is some 70-80% correspondence, that a large majority of men, if they want to drink light, drink zero, a large majority of women drink 
like, drink light. Okay, there is a slight difference what poison you get there in, but they made a simple experiment. They repackaged it. Like they put some zero into light, into diet, and vice versa, and a large majority of men who claimed, no, I only drink zero, I can immediately identify it, of course didn't identify the difference. Now, let's be serious here, I'm not making fun of men and so on and so on, I'm just claiming that, or of women in this case, I'm just claiming to what extent uh, the way things are designed, packaged and so on determines our uh, desires. But is this enough to say what this? This how our desires are not immediate for an object, they are always historically constructed and so on and so on. And here I find, although I respect his work deeply, kind of a blind spot of this wonderful short book of Alfred Bone. He simply insists that an emancipated subject should fully accept this radical alienation of his, her desire. The fact that his, her desire is never his, her own, but regulated through external social symbolic mechanisms. His claim is that either we have this false sense of the self, I really want this, but all you can do is to discover how what you experience as yourself is really just an overdetermined result of uh, symbolic texture, ideologies, and so on and so on. So again, Bone focuses on how the big other, in the guise of digital programs, functions as the external site that determines and regulates our desires, with the obvious reference to Lacan. He quotes repeatedly Lacan's formula, desire is the desire of the other. It's not mine, it's constructed through social mediation and so on and so on. <coughs> and of course this can e easily be shown how even negative desires, desires to transgress, to violate the norms, the space for them is opened through norms. But if our desires always already were decentered, because, of course, Bone consequently should not be claiming that once we really had our desires, now they are manipulated in our digital age. They always were decentered. Uh, what is new here in digitalization? What de was desire not always like this? Is the digital big other? All those computer programs that manipulate us when we play a digital game or in many other cases, just a new case of the symbolic big other, a case which enables us to become aware of how we are decentered and regulated. Spoken and not speaking, as Lacan put it. Lacan's answer is a resolute no. What is threatened in the digitalization of our daily lives is not our free subjectivity, but the big other itself the agency of the symbolic order in its, let's call it naively, standard functioning. Another of Lacan's axiom above desire is the desire of the other is there is no big other. And we should take this statement in its strongest sense. 
is opposed to a mere the big other doesn't exist. Lacan has here a precise distinction. If he says that something doesn't exist, and exists apart, this means just that it doesn't exist in reality, but it still has, it still can exist as a virtual symbolic fiction which structures our activity. For example, if you are a naive, discursive materialist, and even Hegel is it. Hegel would have said, of course, Hegel is here enough of a materialist. Of course, God or state or party, communism, it doesn't exist in an object as an object in our world. It only exists through our concrete activity. There is communism insofar as there are concrete individuals fighting for it or fighting against it and so on and so on. That's Hegel's idea of the big other. And Hegel, he's not quite correct here, also reads Christianity, Holy Ghost, like this. Holy Ghost is not God of beyond. It's something that only exists through the activity of concrete material human beings. But <coughs> this is an existapa. This is to say the big other doesn't exist. Like, to be vulgar, uh, if you kill all communists, then also communism no longer exists because there is no one to practice it. But when Lacan says, il n'y a pas de grand autre, there is no, he has in mind a much stronger meaning. There is no big other implies that the big other cannot even persist as a coherent symbolic fiction, since it is always thwarted, destabilized through in immanent antagonisms and inconsistencies. This is why, for Lacan, the big other is unconscious, and Lacan plays nicely with this uh, unconscious, you know, he uses the shortened formula ICS, which can be read at the same time as unconscious, unconscient, and inconsistent, inconsistence. Uh, and this brings us to the crux of the matter. For Lacan, there is a space for subjectivity only insofar as the big other, there is no big other. The space for subjectivity is precisely in this lacks, gaps, inconsistencies, and so on, of, of, uh, of the big other. And, okay, I repeated this endlessly uh, in my books. I will not lose time now. Uh, uh, this is why, for Lacan, what does it practically mean, uh, there is no big other? It means, paradoxically, the space of freedom. It means what Lacan calls separation in contrast to alienation. Because no matter how much you repeat, uh, uh, oh, I have no free will, I'm overdetermined by symbolic mechanisms, all those stupid formulas which are not the ultimate truth of Lacan. I'm not speaking, I'm spoken, subject is just an effect of the signifier, and so on and so on. This is the position of alienation. My truth is out of myself, out there. But for Lacan, if this were the ultimate truth, then there would only maybe 
exist uh, imaginary selves, selves with their will, of course, <laughs> again, <laughs> tasteless pun, that uh, not, not, sub, not subjects, uh, uh, a subject emerges, a subject in the strict Lacanian sense, which means people neglect this as an ethical subject. They exist only insofar as there is a gap in the other, which is why a subject is strictly correlative to what Lacan calls the lack in the other. For example, you can see this nicely with intelligent theologists when they claim that an impenetrable God, a God even more radically, who is a mystery for himself also, is strictly correlative to, uh, to human freedom. And uh, just a brief, and because, because I think the, uh, the tour, I think that here Protestantism returns to something that was, as far as I can say, I'm not a big specialist here, but I think I'm at least on the right path, something that you find in the most radical Judaism. I quoted, I cannot resist repeating it in two of my books already, I think, the most, you must know here more than me, there is a wonderful story from Talmud, I think, and I even had it in two versions. And this is the greatness of Judaism, <coughs> that they say it openly. You know, that's why precisely things which in Old Testament and Talmud, which are quoted, as it were, usually against the Jews, you see they are not serious, they are corrupted, are the greatest thing for me. In what sense? For example, the story of David and, how do you pronounce, Bathsheba? Bathsheba, yeah. People usually say, you see how dirty they were. He sent uh, his own soldier to death just to be able to screw in peace that lady and so on. But isn't it wonderful? I claim our answer should be, but all kings were like that. And the greatness is that they say it there, you know. You find so much simple evil in Old Testament and so on. I find this wonderful. <laughs> and the same with that, with that uh, wonderful story from Talmud. Again, look at my books, I quote in detail. How, uh, how uh, two great wise guys, rabbis, were debating a point. And the one who was uh, losing uh, said, uh, the one who was losing said, look, we cannot decide, let's call Jehovah himself to come and decide who of us have right. Then, then comes an incredible turn. Jehovah comes and tries to mediate, and then the guy who was me winning starts to shout at Jehovah. Literally, almost in these terms, listen, you gold eye, old guy, you did your job. You created the world, but you screwed it up pretty much, so fuck off. <laughs> now it's for us wise men to decide to debate. And you know what Jehovah said? Oh my God, he is right and runs away. <laughs> That's true theology for me. That's, and it's a, a deep lesson which... I will not, I will try to develop this too much. No, it's not quite in that language. But no, but no, no, I will put it like this. Uh, you know, if I were to be allowed he to says, be myself... children have defeated me. Yeah, yeah, but you know, like, how should I put it? If I were to put it in this terms, I would understood it. But these primitive people yeah. here would not. 
So I have to humiliate myself to be understood. Especially, I know, the elder guy did not say, did not say to Jehovah, fuck off. No, not quite in this terms, you know. No, but you see, my point is also in my Antigone play, which is strangely how it was a total flop. Even the book that obviously I, I thought it, it would do better, you know, my uh, new version of Antigone, and I discovered all around by reactions that I touched something that I shouldn't have touched. Antigone is too much, too mythic. You know my version of how three versions, blah, blah, blah. But uh, what I'm especially proud is that in the second version, I quote Kol Nidre, no? I, I know it was from 15th century or 16th even, I think. No? The is it? But, not, but it's not the Old Testament. No, no, it's medieval. It's, but it is medieval, that's what I mean. But nonetheless, uh, it's not simply all anti-Semites like to quote it like you see Jews are lying and so on. No, it's a much deeper insight, if I put it in my Lacanian terms, precisely in the sense in which big other doesn't exist. You are never totally bound by a symbolic commitment. This is not the last, this is not the last uh, horizon. So, uh, so, let me go on. The deepest insight here is that uh, we should move, we can move beyond alienation. Now, psychoanalysis may appear to be the ultimate poetry of alienation. You know, you think you are the free self, but the big other, your unconscious, uh, determines you, you are overdetermined, and so on and so on. But <coughs> that's the beauty of psychoanalysis. The first, you know, is this properly dialectical reversal. The first gesture is, yes, we are predetermined by the unconscious, we don't have a free self, but then, in a step further, you are even deprived of this last assurance, you know. Because, in what sense? As Freud makes it clear, and that's the big paradox properly theological of uh, psychoanalysis, it's, yes, we are determined, unconscious, but nonetheless, we are guilty, responsible. You, that is to say, you absolutely don't have the right to say, okay, I killed the child, sorry for this pathetic example, but what can you do? Uh, and you, then you paraphrase Lacan, it wasn't me, it was the big other who was acting through me. No, you are, you are, this is why Freud says, I forgot where, somewhere, that the lesson of psychoanalysis is much worse than the lesson of confession. In a Catholic confession, you confess your sins, what you know. In psychoanalysis, you must confess and be responsible even for what you don't know about yourself. But you see that for Lacan, this is the space of freedom. The fact that il n'y a pas de grand autre, there is no big other, there is no external symbolic side to which you can rely as to the ultimate ethical ontological agency so that you ha can say, it's not me, but that's it. That's the true master. This master might be secret over out there controlling me, but nonetheless, there is a place where things are really decided. The deepest lesson of psychoanalysis for Lacan is that that big other doesn't exist. And precisely this 
lack in the other itself opens up the space for our freedom. Because if I cannot even rely on the big other, then in some fundamental sense I am free. Free and fully responsible. I have to... Uh, I have to... Uh, I have to... Uh, I have to do it. So, uh, now... I didn't lose my thread. Uh, uh, I, okay, now you'll say this sounds like this is not my mother, you know, in Freud's dream. That I, no, uh, because let me, now will come my paradoxical conclusion. Let me return to uh, digitalization. Uh, I think that uh, the, the change with digitalization and the danger, why digitalization is a threat for human subjectivity, it's not simply because we are determined out there by the big other, but that the big other is no longer this properly symbolic big other with inconsistency and so on and so on. It is as if the big other really exists out there in digital programs and so on and so on. So uh, what, uh, because again, I will just briefly return to what Lacan means by there is no big other. It means, and this is absolutely crucial for Lacan, castration doesn't mean I am castrated, never, I never fully have what I want, I'm separate. No, the big other is castrated. That's absolutely Lacan's fundamental insight. There is no substantial big other community, whatever, on which I can rely. There is antagonism, inconsistency in the big other itself. And I claim this inconsistency is uh, obfuscated, blocked by this digital dream of we will be totally controlled and so on and so on. So, uh, paradoxically, uh, the way to approach the problem of is digitalization the threat to our identity is not to indulge in this paradoxical dream store, we will be, will we be totally controlled and so on and so on, but What's the fate of the big other? There is no subject without an incomplete big other. Now, uh, again, to recapitulate, today's digitalization poses a threat to autonomous human subjectivity? No. What digitalization threatens is precisely the decentered Freudian subject. Uh, now, uh, but nonetheless, something weird is happening in digitalization, another effect which is much more interesting. The digital machinery that sustains video games not only directs and regulates our desires, it also constitutes, constructs us or puts us into a specific mode of subjectivity. I think that's the key element that is happening in digital games. How do we function there? We enter a, I'm sorry to use these bombastic terms, a pre-edipal, not yet castrated subjectivity that floats in a kind of obscene immortality. When I'm immersed into a game, I dwell in a universe of undeadness where no annihilation is definitive since after every destruction I can return to the beginning and start the game again. It's this kind of obscene immortality. 
And, of course, I will just repeat my old stuff here when I say that this obscene immortality was the stuff of fantasy long before cartoons. Because, apart from video games, we already had it in cartoons. That's why I love them. You remember the good ones, the late ones are bad, like Tom and Jerry from the 50s. What I always like, and I just try to imagine the most obscene movie with real actors would have been just try to enact with real actors a simple Tom and Jerry story. You know, Tom is run over by a car, cut into pieces, and so on. But in undeadness, you begin again and again and again. Uh, so it's clearly that what happened in digital games, when you can start again and again, return to the same point, and so on, uh, uh, is something that obviously is part of a much more fundamental fantasy that you find uh, not only in cartoons, but already we know where it all is. All of it is clearly formulated in Marquis de Sade. As Lacan noted in his Kant avec Sade, what you find in the Sadean victim, if you read those, the rather boring book, I never could have read it, Juliet, for example. It's, isn't Juliet very similar to Tom or Jerry? She's tortured in this way, God, but magically she remains beautiful, she remains the same all the time. It's this type of circular universe, but it's an interesting universe. Why? Because it runs against the philosophy of finitude. Here I rely a little bit on Kentan Meyasu, uh, who criticized it, of course. Uh, according to the philosophy of finitude, finitude or mortality is the unsurpassable horizon of our existence. We cannot escape it. And you have nice phenomenological analysis demonstrating how the very dreams of immortality, infinity, are only meaningful against the implicit background of our mortality. But Lacan's axiom is that no, ma no matter how much you try, you cannot escape immortality. So, of course, really, we die. But the way we function, we are always sustained by this, uh, uh, by immortality. And you insist, uh, this, of course, phantasmatic, obscene immortality. Here I, in a very friendly way, disagree a little bit with Badiou, who likes to elevate immortality as this noble evental category against mortality of us as, as he puts it, human animals. My point against him is, yes, we have this, let's call it very naively, noble immortality. You sacrifice yourself for a cause, for an idea. But we also have the obscene immortality. The immortality not only of cartoons, of Sadean victims, but also the immortality, I mentioned this here 20 times probably, I will not go into it again, just mention it again, the immortality of the living dead, of ghosts and so on, already shelling. German idealist, put it nicely when he said that this ambiguity of the term spirit, guys, is crucial. It can mean spirituality in the noble sense, but it can also mean ghosts, and ghosts are usually evil, you know. They are a sign of uh, that 
we didn't do our duty or whatever. Like, why does Hamlet's ghost, Hamlet's, sorry, father's ghost appear? Not because he was a great guy, but because, as they put it in Hamlet, people neglect this, uh, that he died in the, f- uh, in the flower of his sins or whatever. Uh, it's clear, it's absolutely clear, that's my God, the ABC of reading Hamlet, that the true evil guy in the play is Hamlet's father. It's not uh, Claudius. Read the book if you want to be amused. I'm sorry if I repeat myself. John Updike, otherwise I don't like him too much. Uh, Gertrude and Claudius. My favorite rereading of Hamlet. It takes place just before Hamlet. And it tells the story from Gertrude and Claudius' side. They were sincere lovers. Uh, uh, the father, Hamlet's father, the king was an extremely brutal, evil guy, threatening them both. So more in a self-defense, they kill him. Then uh, uh, Claudius is a good king, and you have almost a happy ending, like, and everything was well in the kingdom of Denmark. And then just one sentence. Just till the stupid, arrogant prince returned from, I don't know where, and ruined everything again, <laughs> so on. I'm convinced by that, if you ask me. Okay, uh, so, so, uh, let's, so uh, let's go on. I think that what Cantor, Georg, that one, mathematician, did for infinity, you know, introducing a multiplicity of infinities, because till Cantor, infinity was usually linked to one. Infinity is the one divine against the plurality. Cantor revolution was introducing multiplicity of infinities, which is why he was quite right, you know, that he was a devout Catholic who felt extremely guilty for this, and even wrote, I read somewhere, a a letter to Pope, and he was right to feel guilty from a Catholic standpoint, because he did maybe one of the greatest moves in materialist revolution, He, he snatched away the topic of infinity from religion and proposed a materialist, uh, a materialist uh, infinity. So again, uh, uh, to conclude this part, I would say that uh, what I'm describing here, now you will say, okay, but it's just a fantasy, no, a fantasy of this repeated immortality. We cannot do it in real life, so it doesn't matter. Of course, we cannot do it literally. If you screwed it up, you cannot run back and so on. But nonetheless, I claim that with the digitalization of our lives, our real lives even, and how this affects our real life existence, we can enact, live this kind of, uh, what I call it, this kind of fake infinity or immortality. For example, I can act in my love life as if I'm experimenting with ever new partners, F, and if the relationship doesn't work, I can erase it and start again. I know despicable friends of mine, they are no longer friends of mine, who acted in this way. You know, they said, what is love? It's like cartoons. You do it, you fail, you erase it, you start again, and so on and so on. So we do have a real-life existential stance which somehow enacts this uh, evil infinity. So instead of celebrating such an immersion into the gaming dream world 
as the liberating sense of, our, of playful repetitions, we should precisely discern in it what in psychoanalysis we would have called the denial of castration, of the gap constitutive of subjectivity. Okay, I will not go on too much here, just to tell you, you know which movie, although it's not as great as some people claim, makes nonetheless here the right lesson. Did you see uh, uh, Groundhog Day? It has a wonderful implicit theological premise, which is that, <coughs> to cut it short, infinity, immortality, is ontologically lower, less than temporality. You know what's the story? The guy awakens each day and can start again, blah, 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 and when true love wins, he falls into time again. You remember, at the end, he awakens the next day. But this is precisely progress, and I think this is the deepest lesson for me. Forget about theology, even of Christianity, as intelligent theologists know, the embodiment of Christ is not fall, it's a progress. Infinity is ethically, ontologically less than immortality. We not fall into infinity. Once we play all these virtual games like the hero in the Groundhog Day and it's a certain triumph, maturity, that we are able to fully awaken or to elevate ourselves to temporality. Uh, and uh, now, uh, just a minute, because I promised democracy. Oh, I still can have half an hour, okay. Now, to illustrate this point, I would like just to mention briefly a movie I asked you to, uh, to copy. So you have already two things to, to, to denounce me now. First, I, I, uh, I condoned terror against the United States, and now, even worse, in the capitalist universe, I would advise you to use Pirate Bay to... <laughs> you know, I told the last time, the arrival, Denis Villeneuve, that uh, a, a film precisely about this type of temporal paradoxes, circular time, and so on, incidentally, it's from the story of Ted Chiang. Ted Chiang is a very interesting science fiction author, a Chinese living in the United States, and it's interesting how it looks that now China is emerging also as a country with very good uh, science fiction literature. I think I already mentioned it here, their biggest hit is uh, Liu Xixin, I'm not sure I pronounced it correctly, The Three-Body Problem, which is a whole trilogy. Uh, and then, and it's even controlled, did I tell you this, maybe, remember that some two years ago, I think, Chinese authorities passed a law prohibiting in any public art media, in cartoons, in movies, TV series, and in literature, two topics of time travel and of alternate realities. It's clear why. They are afraid that somebody would say, well, what if China would not be communist, or what if we can return and get rid of Mao, or whatever. They, but they put it in more bombastic terms. That this opens up, this topic of uh, alternate realities and time travel, open up a disrespectful a space for a disrespectful attitude towards Chinese cultural traditions or something like this. Okay, but uh, so what happens in this movie? You will have now to suffer a little bit, I'm sorry, to tell you the story. 
I'm sorry, and then uh, I will give a reading. So Arrival subverts the standard Hollywood formula of the production of a couple as the frame of a catastrophic encounter. You know, I've written extensively about it. And that's what I like about Hollywood catastrophe movies. Did you notice? It's always, I underline it, always, that the big catastrophe, the end of the world, uh, uh, comet hitting the earth, is always a pretext for a story which is either Oedipal story or story of the production of a couple. For example, did you see the one which even Badiou liked? I like to spread because he's my friend, these rumors of him. You know that one of the great films for Badiou was Ar Armageddon. You remember Bruce Willis, the father? He doesn't like it that Ben Affleck is screwing Cliff Tyler, which means a young guy uh, uh, being the lover of uh, his beautiful daughter. So then it's so clear that the comet threatening to destroy Earth is basically the materialization of the father's fury. And the film ends that the father sacrifices himself, hits the asteroid in this way, exploding it, but his last words are to his daughter, I wish you all the best, now you can be with the guy, he accepts it. It's, and all others, like my big example, I mentioned it here two, three times, did you see Deep Impact? It's similar, it's Tia Leone, a girl who is furious at her father. And again, you have the catastrophe threat to the earth, which is clearly just the materialization of her fury, and so on and so on. And at the end, it's really an extra Oedipal ending. When the big wave destroying all of the East Coast is approaching, she goes to her father, they embrace, she says, Daddy, up. They disappear in a, in a big... It's, uh, you know what's so interesting? Here, you can see what Lacan means by object A, and so on. Something that appears just an accidental side story is really what the movie libidinally is about. And I will not repeat, because I already did 30 times, how along these lines I tried to read also uh, Titanic, you know. That it's not even a love story. Beneath the progressive aspect of Titanic, you really find the nastiest bourgeois myth. Because... Uh, who is the actor, my God? Yeah. Sorry? Yeah, DiCaprio. Uh, he is not really, it's not just they are transgressing the rules by making love. You know, I'm sorry if I repeat myself, check it up if you don't believe it. Look at that crucial moment where Leonardo DiCaprio is dying, freezing. At the very moment of his death, she, Kate Winslet, shouts, I will never let you go, I will never let you go. But look at her hands, she is pushing him away. <laughs> so it's clear that what the movie really about is the story of a, it's Captain Courageous, another version, story of a rich, spoiled lady, impotent, caught in her decadent life, and you know, this is an old bourgeois myth. Sometimes rich people live in their own way, and to regain vitality, they have to suck the blood, get the energy from ordinary people. And that's why his main function is not to screw her or whatever, it's just to restore her ego. 
her will to self in my five days. <laughs> <laughs> Kick the guy. Kick the guy again. Keep going. Keep going. No, because at, uh, you remember already when they are first time when he sees her naked, they don't make love, he, dra- he paints her drawing, you know. It's all about restoring herself. And do another thing. Go to DVD, look at, or Pirate Bay, <laughs> uh, look at the, that final scene just before he pushes him, he pushes him away. His last words to her when he is dying are not the words of a lover, but the words of some kind of a consultant. Be honest, be true to yourself, and so on. <laughs> I mean, it's such clear emotional uh, expression. She, she is the vanishing mediator. His function is over so he can freeze. It's really a melodrama about a young bourgeois girl uh, restoring, her, uh, restoring her vitality. But is there, of course, parallel the institution which organized this very story is also rejuvenating itself? Yes, that I agree. That the BFI at, at, at that very moment. Ah, the no, 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 yes. They, I, uh, they, yeah. they analyze exactly the, the, the trajectory of the British uh, uh, Film Institute up to that moment. And then from that moment onwards, it is amazing. That means they rejuvenate and stabilize themselves with your help. And, and you... <laughs> okay, uh, my help, let's see. Yeah, yeah. You must never be an actor. Always be the director. You learn to make films in a minute. Just one thing you need to know. Synchronicity between image and sound. That's all what we uh, no, uh, no, you know, in what sense, I don't fully agree with you because I, we don't have time to go into it, but because really intelligent directors, and I admire them, introduce small cats break into this synchronicity, and these are usually the most interesting notion. How, for example, typical, it's not even, you have to be a great director, it's standard procedure. When one scene is ending, you hear a sound which you misinterpret it as part of this scene, but it's really already from the next scene. Now, if you just do this mechanically, it's shit. But if you do it intelligently, but you know where I agree with you? I... I think that uh, Catherine Bigelow and, uh, what's his name, my God, the director, uh, James Cameron, are just two sides of the same Hollywood establishment. Neither of them is progressive. I think that uh, Cameron is a typical example of what I call fake Hollywood Marxism. It appears sometimes to be progressive, even ridiculously, like in Titanic, you remember, like, uh, all the lower you go, the better are the people. Lower classes dancing merrily up there, corrupted rich men. What I wanted to show with my reading is that precisely beneath this is a very conservative, different myth. No, the only, now, since you provoked me, I will tell you the obscenity. My only sympathy to David, to James Cameron, not David. I read years ago, in our politically correct times, it would no longer be possible to say this, but I'm not a sinner, I'm just uh, quoting him. Uh, uh, he was asked how did he fell in love, why did he marry Catherine Bigelow, who was more or less beautiful, but very cold type of beauty when she was young. You know what he said publicly? That from the very first moment, he was intrigued 
her cold face, how does it change when she is in intense sex, you know? And that he wanted to see this, so if there is no other way, marry her. I find this, if you ask me, an excellent reason to marry. No, much more than all spiritual bullshit or whatever. Okay, because we don't... Yeah, 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 arrival. Uh, uh, the... Uh, some advice for the chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, the, the chair is, uh, is the chair, but I always look who is the real master behind the chair. But that's not Okay. The film... Uh, yeah, okay, look, listen. You know what? I really want to give you, I lose too much time, uh, uh, time for debate, so I will somehow uh, condense it. At the beginning, you see a lady... Uh, beginning of the film, just a couple of minutes, Lady, the heroine, alone, and her daughter, who is already in her early teens, dying of cancer, or whatever. Then you get, uh, obviously, a flashback. Uh, this lady is some linguistic researcher, whatever, and at eight places on our Earth, at the same time, <coughs> aliens land. And it's again, this Lacanian situation, what do they want? Nobody knows. So, she, the lady, is mobilized with another scientist to establish contact with aliens, and, okay, of course, she falls in love also. They fall in love, the two, but and she finds the story very much. What is crucial is that they gradually establish that the aliens are here to help us, to force humanity to be one, and that they even learn to read their language. They are really octopuses, squeezed, uh, squeezed. Uh, it's not the same, but you know what I mean, like ink. The, the, their uh, writing is a language where they just like an octopus pushing out her its ink. They just push it on the wall, on the, on the glass wall, uh, where they are confronted with these two representatives of humanity, and gradually they learn to read it, but it's a different type of language. It's a kind of a <coughs> circular language where future and past are the same, they see the future, they, they no longer live in linear time. And, uh, okay, at the films, I will skip all the complications, at the film's end, they leave the aliens because they brought humanity together. The, re the real message is constructed from partial messages on the eight ships or not, and uh, uh, which landed in different parts of the world. They claim that they came here to the Earth to help us because they know the future for them. Future, the past and present are in the same circular, contemporaneous, synchronous space. That in 3,000 years into the future, they will need humanity's uh, help. And then what happens is that at the end of the film, uh, the heroine and her scientific partner, the hero, fell in love and decide to be together and to have a child. This is briefly hinted at, but then it becomes clear to you what really happened. She gets it that her visions, like the beginning of the film, and you have some other apparitions, are not some 
primordial memories, but visions from the future. So, this is the wisdom imparted on her by aliens. They, sorry, they, <coughs> they enabled her to see her own past and also future. So her situation is, I, lo I love this guy, should we be together or not? She knows that he will drop her out of despair because they will soon discover that the child, a girl that they will have, has whatever, cancer, leukemia, and will die in a couple of years. She knows everything and the painful death of her daughter, but she nonetheless decides with clear knowledge what is coming. She decides to do it. Now, uh, so again, the ideology of the film is, here is what Chunk, the writer, wrote about the story on which the film is based. Just to make it clear. Humans had, have developed a sequential mode of awareness, like one after the other, temporality or thought, while heptapods, these are these gigantic sweets, aliens with seven legs, whatever, have developed a simultaneous mode of awareness. We experience events in an order, and we perceive their relationship as cause and effect. They, aliens, experience all events at once and perceive a purpose underlying them all. End of quote. So, living in such a circular time radically transforms the notion of acting, not actor, but acting in the sense of intervening. Our common idea of the opposition between free choice and determinism is left behind. Another quote from the writer, the heptapods are neither free nor bound as we understand these concepts. They don't act according to their will, nor are they helpless automatons. What distinguishes them, their mode of awareness, is not just that their actions coincide with history's events, it is also that their motives coincide with history's purposes. They act to create the future, to enact a chronology. Now, if this were to be all, we would have the usual New Age kitsch. You know, there is a deeper contemporaneous circularity, like even, again, the language of this octopus is kind of imperfect, imperfect in the center which stands circle, and they see the future past, they are organic, holistic, we humans are abstract, and so on and so on. But problems immediately emerge here, and here I see the intelligence of the movie. Uh, okay, it's easy to get... Uh, First, the first nice point of the movie is that, although it may appear obvious, the difference between humans and aliens is not sexualized. It's not human men versus feminized aliens. No, aliens' heptapods are more presented as this, like Kraken, almost, ultimate horror, this squid with a great, uh, great mouth sucking us in, or, or whatever. It's the object of animal... Uh, horror. The interesting thing is that remember how I describe it to you that the film's thesis is not just we know the future, we are caught into it. Remember the situation of the heroine at the end of the film. She is she 
she's the future. But she still has the freedom to choose it or not. And that's a nice point because, and it's even a correct theoretical position I would claim. It's again, we are back at the deepest of Judaism and Protestantism, which is predestination, fate, and so on, like the fate of the furious. You saw that great work of art? <laughs> you didn't see that stupid movie which now, my God, it earned over a billion. This means nothing to you. No wonder we are all poor academics. You know? <laughs> no, seriously. Uh, what's, uh, uh, so if, uh, uh, she sees the future, but nonetheless she can change it. But the result is much more... The, the underlying thesis of the film is not even if we see the future, we cannot but enact it. It's a much deeper paradox of you see the future, but this fate itself can be destroyed, historicized, and so on. It's, no, it's similar to that boring paradox in all those Back to the Future movies, where what happens when you travel into the past and kill your parents. If you do it, can you do it? Because if you do it, then you cannot, you will not be in the future. So you will not be in a position to move to the past. You will destroy, erase your act itself. But if you destroy your act itself, would it not mean that your parents will nonetheless screw and produce you? You know, like... Uh, I, I think the correct reading is this one, a much deeper insight that every historical moment has its past and its future. In this sense, we are predetermined. And uh, I'm almost tempted to say, in a very specific way, I don't have time to develop it here, that we cannot maybe change the future, it's predetermined, but we can change the past, and in this way. That is to say, she knows the future. He, she will get married to that guy, have a child with him, it will end tragically. So what happens if she acts against the future? She destroys, it's a total catastrophe, future and the past. It's a totally new world. It's a kind of a radical death drive. You know, it's the vision of history. It's not just the vision of uh, the vision of the usual common sense vision. I'm here now, I have a determined past, but I have different options for the future. No, it is, the future is predetermined in the sense of, if I remain within my historic totality, ideology, it's a clear line past future. From past to future, and it's shit, as we know today. If we just go on today the way we did, it's some kind of catastrophe for humanity, ecology, whatever. But we can do a crazy act which, in a way, changes the past, not the real past, but how the past constructed that we inherited and so on. And this is, for me, a radical historical act. I'm not saying anything mystical here, even. I always quoted at least seven, eight times, you know, from P.S. Eliot's, uh, what's his most famous as a literary... Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. When he says that every great new work of art doesn't just break with the past, it changes the entire past. Of course, not materially, but... Uh, 
Let's say past is present for us as the image of the past, symbolic and so on. We can change that. So again, the first act of changing the future is changing the past. Is this type of radical act which changes. And now I come to the philosophical conclusion. I want to be short here. Uh, this is why, as I already emphasized here, uh, the true choice is not this simple choice, do I do this or that, but a much radical choice, choice of changing the past itself, in other words, of undermining the entire context, historical totality, uh, part of which uh, I am. Uh, so, in some sense, that's my reading of the film, very moralistic, she, the girl, does a wrong choice. I don't know how you look at it, but it's too much of an egotistic choice. I think, knowing that, I would have said, okay, sorry, no, I will be vulgar, but not in any problematic way. Okay, let's have some sex with the guy if we like each other, but no children if I know there will be, and so on. But something much more important we get here. Again, if you read the movie in the obvious way, it would be New Age bullshit. We humans are limited, we have our abstract temporal sequential approach, while these stupid uh, organic holistic squids, heptapods, they have a holistic approach, they see past, future, part of the same totality, and so on, and so on. All intelligent debates on the website I tried to get, most of them, focus correctly on one big topic. If they know everything already, they, aliens, heptapods, what kind of help will they need from us 3,000 years from now? What can we teach them? Totality, it is theirs already. Holistic totality and so on. We just bring limitation. And I have only one consequent uh, Hegelian answer. That's what they are lacking. Breaking one-sidedness and so on and so on. The greatness of human symbolic universe it's precisely that it's not holistic. I think all, to put it naively, progress, change, comes from non-holistic approach. From saying, isn't also this love? Love is not holistic. Love is not I love you all. No, the only guy who said I love you all, you remember who it was, you are too young. Erich Milke, the chief of Stasi, in his last appearance in East German Parliament, where it was all falling down, and people started to shout against him, and he did a wonderful gesture like this, aber ich liebe euch alle, but I love you all. The greatness of love is precisely, no, sorry, I don't want to be accused of harassing you, so I will, none of you, so the, I love you and ultimately, <laughs> but no, this is God. Okay. I love you and I don't, you know, this, to accept this radical imbalance, one-sidedness, I don't want to see it. One-sidedness, partiality, choice. Hegel is not a holist in this sense. He always praises the power of abstraction. Even what is our reason at its most creative? It's not I see it all. That's only the first step. It's then to abstract, to say I see it all, but to put it in Maoist terms, there is a principal contradiction. That is to say, but only this matters. So it's a wonderful 
deep insight that uh, we cannot simply escape into any primordial holistic wisdom and so on. We need to make, to be one-sided, to make a radical choice that this is the only way to build universality and so on and so on. That's for me, again, a very, in, very nice, subtle message of the film. And it's incredible how many interpreters, critics, missed it because they read it as a simple New Age mysticism. While on the contrary, the point of the movie is not that everything is predestined, we stupid humans just don't know it. Yes, we cannot change faith. We cannot change the scope of our faith once we are within it. But in a much more radical, we can change, ruin faith itself. And that this precisely is our strength as abstract beings. The power of humanity is negativity, is to abstract, to cut, as Hegel puts it. The power of human spirit is not to bring together the opposite, but to tear apart what in nature uh, belongs together. So, uh, you see, this is what I like to do, to take a movie which may appear saying the opposite and to read it in a more subtle way. And I read some interviews with the director. He's so-so. He was aware, but not quite clearly what he is doing. Since I offered you some... Yes, it's... Allow me one point crucial to connect to that. That means, however, the framework which organizes that discourse... Which discourse? Uh, for instance, your discourse in the moment, or the discourse in which you uh, support the film, uh, is, has its own power of, uh, of adding holistic aspects, even if you are negating it. In what sense, precisely? Con concretely. If you then are, because uh, the, the discourse is in the heads of, the, of your audience, always, not in your own uh, output. Yeah, yeah. So therefore, when you, for instance, in the film, uh, mm. previously, come out of airplane doors, directly after previously we have seen Stalin coming out yeah. of, uh, or yeah. Hitler. Yeah. So it transports you into a realm which no doubt you did not add your intention to that this would happen. Okay. So you know, no, because I think that at the same time, wait a minute, imagine it, me standing at the side of Stalin. I doubt Stalin will survive this, you know what I mean? Am I not a scandal there, stepping out like Stalin and so on? I think we should do it in the right way, to transpose ourselves into that universe, but as the disturbing element. Because you know what's also interesting, but I don't have time to go into this now, because I should leave some space yeah. to other debates, that, uh, you know, you should never forget that Practically all ideologies function in the way that they cannot openly admit their own presuppositions. Like, uh, like uh, it would never have been, if especially Stalinism, the most, one of the most brutal dictatorships, uh, they had to pretend that they have some form of freedom. That, uh, 
Like, you were not allowed to say, Stalin is our master, uh, uh, sorry, old joke, I repeated it here at least ten times. In Stalinism, you were not allowed to say publicly what everyone knew it was true. We are not allowed to criticize Stalin, Stalin is a master, if we do it, you will disappear. If you said this, what everybody knew, you would be absolutely immediately arrested. So, this is what always fascinated me with Stalinism, how... At the same time, it was the most brutal regime, risking millions, not a problem for them. But at the same time, it was a regime incredibly sensitive to appearances. And I, sorry to repeat myself, I like one example that I read, at least I hope it's true. You know, people wondered why in Soviet Union, the uh, 1st of May parades were never disturbed by rain or storm and so on. And they discovered that they spread all the air uh, above Moscow with some very problematic half-poisonous gases just to guarantee there will not be rain because they perceived that if a storm rain were to disturb parade, the appearance of all powerfulness of the regime would be broken. The appearance had to be Say it's incredible. This is the key to Stalinism for me. Again, or again, what I quote in my chapters in my old books on communism, this idea totally absent in fascism that I read, not by some leftist, an Applebaum uh, uh, Gulag in that book, how on Stalin's birthday, uh, uh, citizens, okay, inmates of Gulag were gathered, and they all had to with acclamation accept a long telegram endorse it, wishing Stalin all the best for his birthday, long years to live. Why this? Everybody knew this was appearance, but it was absolutely compulsive to do it. And it's totally meaningless to do it in Nazi Germany. It doesn't work there. Can you imagine all the inmates of Auschwitz collected for Hitler's birthday and sending him best wishes. You know, this is where I like to complicate things. Uh, even when reality is at its most brutal, it has appearances to rely on. Don't underestimate appearances. Okay, okay I think we'll collect a few. Some people have got in with preemptive strikes. But St. George has got the left off of the back, if you don't mind, St. George. Got the, cam- got the microphone in there. That, yes, this, this young man here. You should have started and back. Yeah. He supports backwards first. We'll click off you if you don't mind. Yeah. Because you've Thank you very much. Uh, you said, you've spoken about the living dead, zombies, yeah, yeah. vampires, but I was wondering if you could say something about werewolves and metamorphosis and if that's in purchase in your system. Thanks. Uh-huh. Okay. okay, well, okay. 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 Thank you. I just wanted to ask about the idea, going back to arrival, yeah. problems of communications and diplomacy, because to me it's also a similar idea of a zeros code sum game, in the sense that we're looking at the science as humans, but we're also looking at aliens. And if we think of the root of the word Latin, alias, it means other. Mm-hmm. Okay. Okay. Uh, yeah, let's do the other side. So I'm afraid I'm pointing on the right, this is left. Well, this is opportunistic, I feel you, I don't buy it. 
I'd really love to hear your thoughts on uh, what happened at the Oscars in February uh-huh. with La and Moonlight. Uh, I feel like that's, there's some good analysis to be done. Let's speak of my memory. Can I quickly, I promise. First of all, was the notion of metamorphosis. Second was the business about... No, Wherefore's arrival communication with Moonlight Oscar. Very briefly. I cannot go on. The first one, I must admit, I don't have a good theory of werewolves, but all I can tell you is what I developed in some of my books, like the basic distinction, I love it, between vampires and uh, zombies. I think it clearly has a class dimension. Vampires are always upper class gentlemen. They live among us. Zombies are outside, stupid, pseudo-working class, slowly. You know that the crucial movie is the one, uh, White Zombies Like This, crucial movie from 32, one year too later with Hayes Code, it would be prohibited, where the actor who is the ultra-vampire, uh, uh, Bela Lugosi, uh, plays a plantation owner in the south and takes guests to his factory where you see all his workers there are uh, zombies, living dead. And he said it's wonderful. They just work, they have no trade union rights, and so on and so on. <laughs> so I think that it's absolutely crucial to see this class dimension there. So I cannot answer you concretely. What I would just have said is that it's crucial not to put all of them, these monsters together, and so on. Which is why, in my craziest moment, against that official Spielberg movie, Lincoln. I much preferred the other one, Abraham Lincoln, the vampire killer or slayer. <laughs> That's the left answer to you. <laughs> Sorry, I a second Oscar. one, arrival communication. There, I don't have time to develop it, but there I think a movie cheats a little bit because I think with strict structural and so on linguistics, it can be shown that that so-called circular language of, uh, of heptopets and so on, it's really just a fantasy from within our language. If you don't implicitly presuppose the differential, non-circular structure of our language, you cannot, you cannot uh, do it. In other words, all I would impute to heptopets, aliens in the movie, is that... Uh, Maybe they have some direct mental communication or whatever. It's not language. It's not language. So that would have been my direct answer. The third one, Oscar, uh, 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 what was Moonlight or whatever, no? Listen, I have great sympathy for ideologically, theoretically, for Moonlight. But am I permitted to say something for which... I was looked upon as if I said the ultimate obscenity in these politically correct times recently in, where I was, in L.A. or where I don't think it's a great film, really. I know it's politically incorrect. How can you? It's the movie about black gay people. So <laughs> whatever you say, you are immediately homophobic, racist. No, it's not such a good film. I'm not saying that uh, the other one, La La Land, is any better. But this precisely is, although it's a modest, correct movie, Moonlight, but if 
let's call it naively progressive cinema will move just in that direction. It will be very sad. That's, it's what, not. What it. about the enactment of the Oscars? So, the, you know, the, the muddle. Oh, I don't know. I, I am. I, I, well, I was there a couple of days after. Uh, giving some talks, nothing to do with Oscars in Hollywood, <laughs> and it's incredible. So it Zizek, yeah, yeah, that I was there secretly <laughs> distributing. <laughs> uh, and it was incredible how many paranoiac theories were. The predominant paranoiac theory in Hollywood itself was that they were afraid because I think the, how do you call it, how many million people uh, were looking at it, it was rather a failure, and the idea was that. To, so that people will talk more about it that they on purpose organized it and so on, you know. Then the other theory was, of course, but it's too primitive, that it was a typical white liberal flip, secretly racist. No, I think, if anything, it helped the movie. Everybody talked about it and so on and so on. So I'm, I'm not ready to read anything uh, deep into it. No, you know, sorry, uh, what, sorry, you know what, for me, the problem with Moonlight, that if you, all the narrative structure, the way love functions and so on, it follows all the standard Hollywood formulas. It's really... Uh, a movie which is a very traditional movie in some sense. Okay. Okay, so really quick. So just next to the person next to you, and then uh, the guy from Monday, briefly. Yeah. <laughs> are you are you aware of uh, any of the recent workarounds or developing workaround cognition, uh, embodied cognition? You mean Varela and his followers? Yeah. And uh, and how you think that will affect on the likes sort of uh, ethics, uh, embodied ethics, and to perhaps relate that to. Arrival. Uh-huh. The, the, the experience. No, I know that Varela was uh, Buddhist. He tried to combine. Yeah. yeah. Let's hold on to it. Ah, okay, okay. Sorry. So Three questions. Yes. Really brief, if you, if you don't mind. I know you have a lot to say. Uh, you, you mentioned, uh, you, you said about the light at the end of the tunnel and uh, yeah. how the, the courage of hopelessness. I was, I was wondering whether. Our perception of the present situation could be influenced by optimism or pessimism. So it could be a train coming at us, or it could be a kind of new horizon or a new Eden. So I'm saying, is our choice of optimism or pessimism an influence of the future? Thank you. One more from a woman. Now I will be evil. Don't you know there are no women, there are only lesbians, mothers, and so on. Make sure it is abstract. There are situations in which only men can speak. Part of our homework on Monday was to watch the discovery. I'm so sorry. I okay. I can. Yeah, yeah. But there you. You know what I will do. I hope you will agree. Uh, you either now that I'm running out. You give me your email, not that you will get an obscene proposal, maybe three penises or whatever. Or even is medicine here, I can send it to me because uh, I didn't want to spend too much time and much better than now to improvise. I'm ready to send you my text where all these readings are. Okay, well, if you could send it to Madison, I mean, people can... Access yeah, okay, Madison, okay. you see here. But there was a, there was a question about yeah, so optimistic horizon and... Oh, I forgot no, no, there are two others, immediately ever do it. First, uh, cognitive embodiment and so on and so on. I greatly appreciate his work. He's almost my ideal Varela, 
But there, and all I can say is, I forgot in which of my books, I may be wrong, but I think in Parallax View, the middle two chapters. I have a couple of pages of him where I, you know what would be my idea here? Uh, basically, where I disagree is that the lesson of psychoanalysis is, no, we are not fully embodied. Unconscious is precisely like this embodiment means, you know, it's a nice theory, like we are not abstract Cartesian cogitos, we are engaged in a life world and so on and so on. But what Freud called unconscious is precisely some more universal abstract symbolic machine which all the time in a way disembodied us. I think uh, what Freud called unconscious is not our deepest bodily instincts in something that precisely disturbs the relationship of body and soul, whatever, and so on and so on. I don't have time to go into it now very briefly. And uh, uh, it was optimism, pessimism, train, and so on. Well, I can only give you a formula which may appear empty, but I believe in it. That the trick is to accept pessimism and then to look for a sign of hope in pessimism itself, that is to say, I'm not just bluffing, when things go wrong, there usually also a chance opens up to do something to change the entire situation and so on and so on. That was the reason, for example, I now suspect that I was wrong, why I, not, I'm not crazy, supported Donald Trump, but say maybe his victory can do what? can bring new chaos, confusion, where maybe we can catch or discern an opportunity to do it. Basically, I mean, to change the whole situation. Basically, my solution would be here, that old, I repeated it 20 times, Mao's formula, there is disorder under heaven, so the situation is <laughs> excellent, whatever. We should never forget that catastrophes, social chaos are also chances, an opening to do something. And that's my position, like, you know, in this sense only, optimism in pessimism itself, in the sense of see a new chance in a desperate situation. If there ever was a guy who did this, and it may appear problematic because he was very brutal in doing this, was Lenin, that was the entire Lenin view of World War I. It's a catastrophe. Millions will die, but isn't there a unique chance in it? Okay, sorry. This one, okay, sorry. And then we'll move, move here after. Um, just that one there. Thank you very much. Um, um, do you agree with the view that maybe Orwell in 1984 showed in a dystopian way what you have proposed as changing the future is only possible yeah. when changing the past? In the end of episode, we call you from nature and biology as being structured around three principal antagonisms, but you only do it in the end of the book, which seems to me that it can only be taught as the end of a dialectical process, as it's true, which cannot be mediated yeah. anymore. Is it possible to take that as a starting point in uh, philosophical or your style of ontological analysis, or does retroactivity then, uh, let's say, mislead us into thinking in terms of uh, substantial entities again? 
Uh, well, my one, one, one more. Oh, sorry, sorry. Uh, hi, um, I was interested in the process of digitization that you talked about, digitalization, uh, yeah. uh, in relation to the network into individual, which Paul Reason talks about. In yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, okay, I will begin at the end very briefly. Uh, in uh, it's even in this uh, 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 in this uh, 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 book about uh, uh, courage of hopelessness that I have a couple of pages on Paul Mason and so on and Jeremiah Rifkin and all that. You know, where I agree with them and with others is that effectively with this digitalization and other processes, something fundamental is happening with capitalism. Capitalism as we know it cannot go on. But uh, I'm a little bit more pessimist than they. It's typical, although I greatly appreciate him. When Paul Mason speaks, he does have to mention how precisely this Internet of Things and so on is getting reprivatized, reappropriated by state agencies, by all those big companies. Now we have Internet of Things, it means uh, whatever, Mark Zuckerberg and so on, all those big humanitarians. Uh, uh, I And his idea is this is just an intermediary phenomenon. Like, now we have first sign of post-capitalist order, but it's not yet fully developed, so now capitalism can still reappropriate it through these big companies which privatize our commons. That's the formula. I'm more of a pessimist. I don't think that Internet of Things, or however we call it, cooperative commons, can work all the way. I think some external, let's call it political agency is needed to the end because uh, I think that uh, for example one, and with this I will end, one great danger that I see is the following one and some other intelligent analysts got it okay, with capitalism we no longer need personal authority because the authority is money, so we can pretend we are all equal. But what if Internet of Things, digitalization, and this cooperative commons will open up a new space for new master figures, for new authorities? They are already emerging. Are we aware what, how strange are figures like Mark Zuckerberg, uh, Steve Jobs, and so on, and so on? They are, for me, much more dangerous even than Trump, and so on because they embody the big threat today, the privatization of, uh, of commons. And as uh, my friend Jean-Pierre Dupuy, the good futurologist, and many others pointed out, the big problem already of early communism, Soviet Union, was, okay, you abolish alienation in the commodity sense, you know, money, things, ruling uh, over uh, us, but... Uh, direct domination returns with the vengeance. And I'm not so sure that cooperative commons automatically imply some kind of genuinely cooperative, uh, democratic, multiplicity, whatever. I think that the problem of power and domination remains. Even some economists, I'm now reading their stuff, are going in this direction it's extremely interesting trend, claiming that with new digital capitalism, virtual, financial, what is happening now, 
the tendency is not towards more abstraction in the Marxist sense that now virtual money will rule over us, totally disembodied, abstract, but that next step will be a return of personal power and domination. So I see, it's a very confused answer, but that's what I wanted to say. I see very many problems here. 1984? Uh, sorry? 1984? Yes, 1984, uh, I see what you mean, but... Again, my God, this is another good question, which means give me two hours to, <laughs> to formulate it. Uh, I was always a little bit distrustful about Orwell. I don't think his image of future was, uh, was correct. It's almost too utopian. You know, it doesn't function like this, you know, that... Uh, how many fingers do you see? No, it's not four, it's five, or whatever. That simple cheating with facts and then sexual love as transgression and so on and so on. No, the threat today is more that we are controlled, dominated. That would be the digital threat for me. But we don't even know how unfree we are, how, how controlled we are. That's why I moderately, he is doing crazy things, defend uh, Assange when he's reproached with, why do you attack only published documents from the United States? Why not China, Russia? Well, my answer is every idiot knows what China and Russia are. It's easy. Nobody thinks they're really free there. But in the United States, majority still thinks, even if they had Trump, we are free. The true danger is that you don't even know that you are controlled, but your, your uh, choices, your desires are controlled. So in this sense, there is, I always read Orwell as an, uh, 1984 as some kind of uh, anachronic, nostalgic image of a dystopia, a beautiful old dystopia, you know. There is, in this direct domination, you know, there is always something naively attractive in it. That's, that's the, that, although he was a nice guy and so on and so on, but if you ask me, I much prefer his essayistic writings and so on. They are much better than his big, although he was honest, you know, that 1984, uh, when it was directly mobilized by Cold War activists, he was honest enough to write an open letter to Americans claiming that, uh, wait a minute, I'm fully supporting the Atlee Labour government, I'm not a right-winger, and so on and so on. He resisted, absolutely. But you know, uh, like, uh, again, the problem with Orwell is that he relies too much on this, let's call it for me at least, common sense idea, you know, uh, ministry of truth. His idea of changing the past is all too naive. It's that you literally have to change the data and so on and so on. Even in Stalinism, this holds only up to a point. Today, you no longer need to change the data. And nonetheless, mystification can be even more radical. And that's what always fascinates me with intelligent new authority figures. They admit everything. You know, no, we don't do any retroactive changes, out, uh, erasing out, and so on and so on. You just change radically the entire frame of interpretation. 
So, uh, I, there is one I will try to answer it quickly. This retroactivity, uh, retroactive dialectics, and so on and so on. My God, there is another uh, uh, mega question. Okay, I will do something very cheap, but sincere. This exactly is the focus of my next book. <laughs> Incontinence of the void. It's not obscene. It's a quote for, from Samuel Beckett, where I try precisely to do what you indicated, and I agree this is crucial for me, not to get involved just in this social analysis, but I try very naively to address the big ontological question. What does all this Lacanian, Hegelian bullshit of mine means? For what, what is objective reality? In what sense do we have access to it? And so on, and so on. And uh, uh, so there, it's not so much retroactivity as precisely this idea, messages from the future, ontological openness, the objectivity of antagonism, I am for realism in the sense that things are not out there as some in itself to which we don't have access. But I think we should change all this naive realist perspective. There is reality out there, and if we purify our false perceptions, somehow we will get at it. You know, already John Locke did this with his otherwise beautiful distinction you know, between primary and secondary qualities. For Locke, those qualities that we perceive with only one of our senses, like color, they're subjective. But those like shape, which a shape, I can see it and I can touch it. So I can confirm the shape of an object with more than one sense, which means it's an objective property. I don't buy this. I think the true paradox, my solution is as always Hegelian, is that the true point of the real is how we are inscribed into reality. Every reality can be dismissed as subjectively constructed. But how we fit it, there you touch the real, it's too much now, I cannot... Uh, I'd like to really thank Slavoj. He's, he's back again uh, on the second week of the Critical Theory Summer School and on an open panel, uh, open to everybody, on Friday afternoon, I think it's the 7th of July, the first Friday of July. So but can I it, tell you something... And he's got, he's, got big, he's got a big deal this evening, so he needs to be yeah, helped yeah, along yeah. his way. Uh, thank can you, I tell you something <laughs> evil? But isn't the truth of it. It's open to everybody who will pay the price, no? No, no, it's free on the Friday it's afternoon. It's free. On the Friday afternoon, it's free. The uh, yeah, is free. Uh, fuck you. Friday afternoon, it's free because it's just the stupid debate, no? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, but the previous, <laughs> the big seminar, no?